Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 31st of March, Michael, and you know what that means. Tomorrow's the 1st of April. Well, yes, a pastor has been arrested for holding a service. You want to talk about that? Sinn Féin are having another go, or sorry, the Indo is having another go at Sinn Féin over its usual trivial nonsense, but this time a couple of the Fine Gael lads have gotten involved as well, because no one has anything better to be doing. The vaccination program is being rejigged. Mandatory quarantine. The people who escaped weird story there about the guards and that and the government has now announced that should two people who are fully vaccinated get together they are free to do so from two different households and i'm not happy about that so i suppose we will start with the uh the first little bit michael a pastor was arrested on sunday up in dublin they had gone to a uh, another pastor's church to speak at a Sunday sermon and the guards walked in during the sermon walked up to the pastor who was Uh, finishing up the sermon, told them they had to stop, step aside and talk to them. They refused. The guards let them have a final prayer. And then the guards started taking people's details and arrested a pastor and basically frog-marched them out of a church. Remember the good old days when the minister said that uh, attending a public mass was not a penal offence? That seems like another, another lifetime ago, doesn't it? And then they went to the court, and then the court didn't know, and they didn't know. So, like the nice man from Trinity said, when they actually have to say, because they have no other choice but to say, they can usually find an answer. And, of course, it is now a penal offence to celebrate and attend a public religious worship service. (laughs) The problem, I don't know if it it is a good thing, of course, but... It must be a little bit tedious if you're a policeman about his duties anywhere in the world these days. You are now being videoed by at least 40 people at any one time. And there is no shortage of video of the particular incident. There's not, which is particularly unfortunate for the guards because they get a little bit pushy. Yeah, um, there's a moment in it, and this is just one's impression of seeing the bits of video, cause, and let's face it, we everything you see video online comes with a caveat emptor about it we have to be careful because we have had experience of things being online before and not being the whole story but at one stage it seems like the pastor is reaching out and touching the, the guard's arm the guard responds rather more vigorously than you'd say would appear to be necessary and it's, it's not that he quite strikes him but there's a, a force to the push that it's and this happens it seems to happen more than once it's uh it's not a good look. No, there's definitely a bit more, um, should we say, physical direction being used than there needs to be. And it's a bad look. I mean, to march in in the middle of a service and demand that a religious minister stop immediately, that's not going to play well with a lot of people. I mean, some people will play fantastically with, and some people will simply say, well, they were breaking the law, and so the guards broke it up. But I have a feeling that the image of a priest or minister or a pastor being physically removed from a church is not one the government wants. No, and for the again, from the point of view of the, of the optics of it, you'd wonder whether or not it mightn't have been more sensible. By the time they intervened, the offence, if we want to call it that, had, had, had been committed. There wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be further exacerbated. It might have made a little bit more sense from the point of view of managing the public perception of the issue to wait until the service was concluded and then to approach 
whoever it was that they wanted to approach for breaching the regulations or for breaking the law. But they made the choice that they wanted to make. So as we know from the latest communication from the great leader to the people, originally it had been intimated that religious worship would return from next Monday, a date which was causing a degree of irritation to Christians because there was a sense, why would you pick the Easter Monday when you could just as easily, for the sake of three days, pick Good Friday, which uh, allowed Christians to go to church for the three most important days of the Christian calendar. However, I think I'm right, Gary, in saying that the intimation from today is that worship services will not be uh, on the cards until May now. There's talk of some sort of staggered reopening, but they haven't really given any detail of what that will actually consist of. For me, uh, as I have said, I've observed before, it's not so much as uh, when we're talking about churches and church services, not so much speaking as uh, as a member of the club, but rather a, you know, a supporter or a friendly voice from outside. They're, they, they have asked on, on, on a number of occasions, perfectly respectfully and reasonably, I think, if the if Neffet or if the government or the HSE or somebody could provide the data, the evidence, the on which the ban on public worship is based. Now, I would say that that particular request is that's a request that could be made about a number of different I, no, restrictions that have taken place, uh, as opposed to permissions that have been allowed. That. We could say, well, yeah, you've you've done that. Why have you done that? And the problem here again is symptomatic of a, the wider problem of communication, Gary. That, to my knowledge, they have never received a reply. They've received, say, you could say platitudes or just generic responses. Well, it's in the public health interest, um, in the pandemic, and blah blah blah. But at this stage, we have a fair degree of real-world data from all around the world. Within Europe, we have the great majority of countries with Europe have allowed church services to continue over the last year. It's at, it's at some level anyway, and with 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 restrictions and with spacing, etc. So we should have some kind of a sense of the risk that public worship actually does present and i think it would if you're going to push these things if you're going to continue with these policies as a government i i I think if you want people to come with you you really have to start to try and explain why you're doing it not just say we're doing it we think it's for the best take us at our word now maybe it's a little bit late in the day at the end of march more than a year into the pandemic that they should start to be doing this. But I think even now it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a bad idea to simply say, okay, we understand that you're frustrated. We understand that this is something which is very important to you. But we have data from this and from here and from there which tells us that this is a risk which is excessive for us uh, at this time and we don't want to, to go through with it. I suppose the other thing is they don't seem to get, or am I, or maybe I'm wrong here, Gary. They talk about 
things that are essential and un, unessential. And the, shall we say that this, those things which are considered unessential are being pushed back till May, till June. And the clear message is from the government that they, they don't perceive, they don't understand public worship as being something which is essential. Now, it may not be essential for you, Gary. It may not be essential for me. It may not be essential for Leo. For Leo. But I think at this point, they have to consider that for some people and for some substantial number of people, it is very, very important indeed for, for their quality of life, for their quality of their mental and spiritual health, and that that should be taken. But on, on top of that, there is a, the fact that there is actually a constitutional guarantee which allows, which guarantees the practice and the freedom of, of religion. And I don't know if I don't get the sense that they're taking that constitutional guarantee terribly serious. There is no constitutional guarantee that you allow you'd be allowed to go to the supermarket, or that you'd be allowed to go to get your hair cut, or that you should be allowed to go to IKEA. But there are constitutional guarantees, explicit, strong constitutional protections of of practice of religion. And I'm not getting a, a strong sense that this particular government is taking those constitutional protections terribly seriously. Whatever would give you that idea, Michael? Well, if they mentioned them at least, that would be a help. If they said, listen, we understand that this is a constitutional right, it's a basic human right, and we would we only restrict it in the most serious of circumstances, and we have strong reasons to believe that in the public good, for the common good, for public health, this is something which is necessary. But at least speak to the fact recognize the fact first of all that while it's not important for you it is very important for some people and make it sound like you actually believe that i mean god love him leo leo and perfectly fine i mean he, he wished uh hindus a uh, happy holy and uh, the jewish community in ireland a happy pesach uh, a couple of days ago the same the man that couldn't say happy christmas it 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 yeah. I think that they could choose their way of communicating with those people in Ireland who still identify and practice as Christians a little bit more carefully. They are feeling fairly battered and bruised. And they may not have sympathy with some of that, some of the reasons why that is the case, but they are. So a, a little bit of handling wouldn't go amiss. And it would be perhaps the supreme irony if this ended up in the European Court of Human Rights and it was the European Court of Human Rights ended up telling the government, no, you can't do this. And this has been happening in courts around the world. People's religious rights are being vindicated by the courts. It's happened in Scotland recently. It's happened in the United States. It's happening in continental Europe. Who knows? It may happen yet here. It was, uh, it was interesting, the reaction to that pastor being arrested in the churches was pretty, I would say, a great deal of unhappiness. And a sort of desire to uh, stand in solidarity with that person, which lasted until about the government announced that they would allow that staggered reopening in about five or six weeks. And that seems to have killed off a lot of the uh, drive to actually just reopen the churches for Easter. But it will be interesting to see how many still go ahead with it. Will there be any priests or pastors who who break out and, and just do it themselves? Or will I suspect more likely that it'll be groups of laity, shall we say, activist laity, who will get together and do something in concert together 
and draw the ire of the Lord down upon themselves. But you see, I suppose politically, they're, one of the problems is the cor religious people, Gary, tend to be good citizens. They tend to be law abiding. They tend to be civically minded and they tend to be attentive to things like the broader public good. So they are very slow, if you like, to go into challenge, and particularly in the context of the cultural context of Ireland today, they're slow to get in, 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 in into challenges directly with the secular power, with the secular arm. And I suppose the politicians know that. I mean, I know that you and I have been in, in circles over the, the last number of years where we've heard people complaining about things. And the fact is, if Christians in Ireland don't understand that, if you the only way that you get politicians to respond to you is by imposing a political cost on them displeasing you, then you're never going to get anywhere with politicians. And I think there's a strong feeling amongst politicians that religious people in Ireland will make a lot of noise, but at the end of the day, they're never actually going to be sufficiently organised or sufficiently consistent or coherent to actually do any damage to them. I can see what they would think that, because up to now they have been right in that. My take on this is that the government do not care about the churches, do not care about them at all. They have no real regard to them. Their issues are funerals and weddings because they can win votes or lose votes on those. I think they'll try and do the, the very least possible they can with the churches, knowing that the religious ministers um, are going to be very hesitant to do anything. I think that the, the arresting of the pastor on Sunday is a real problem for the government if it happens again, if it's not just a single thing. And my take on it would be that if the churches want to force a reopening or want to at least have their concerns taken seriously and get the government to at least be willing to give them some evidence or reasons for why they're closed when churches are open nearly everywhere in Europe, is to make this a political problem. And you make this a political problem by having local TDs open their paper and see a photo of you being physically dragged out of your church. I agree. I think that's the bones of it. They don't care. They care about weddings and funerals because that's what the funerals annoy people deeply in Ireland. People want to go to funerals. Weddings, because it's a practical issue, people have, they want to organise weddings, they want to have their family and they want to have their friends there. So it's, it's a big thing. It's not a religious thing. But simply as a religious practice, yeah, the only thing is when they open the, the paper and they see a church in front of them that they recognise in a parish that they know and a priest that they know. And around the priest, they see people that they know that vote for them looking pissed off and angry. And yet they won't do it. They just, they constantly get to the edge. And now that the government has come out and given a date, a lot of them are, the consensus that had seemed to build up very quickly over about a day seems to be dissipating because now there is, oh, well, they've given a day, surely they'll open. To which, Michael, let me sum up my views with this single sentence. Two weeks to flatten the curve. Oh, the man is such a cynic, so young and yet so cynical. I'm curious, if anybody out there that's listening happens to be aware, actually, of data which is specific to con infection and connected to, to church services, I, if you send us an email in or something, I'd be, I'd be interested. I've had a look around. I haven't found anything. Um, I found bits and pieces of reportage, but not, no, no serious data. So I'd be curious. If there is stuff out there, send us a, a message. I'd be, I'd be interested to see what it is. So from that to the Gardaí, 
A wonderful example, Michael, of joined up thinking. The sort of joined up thinking that we've demonstrated repeatedly through this pandemic. You know, the government has been very far ahead of the curve in recognising potential issues. And definitely hasn't waited until two months after those issues have turned up and then desperately cobbled together some sort of hack job that basically bandages over it until it all falls apart a week down the road again. Certainly not. So The Independent has a, a story. The headline is Gardy Furious Over Farcical Hunt for Quarantine Absconders. And the basic gist of the story is this. On the first full day of the mandatory quarantine, three people escaped. Then yeah. it turned out that the Garthi were sent to find those people. Uh-huh. The Garthi had no passport details, no photographs, and no form of ID to work off when they tried to find these people. <laughs> what they did have was they had the name given by each person and a phone number that they had filled in on a form. All right. Okay. Yeah, the Gardaí themselves told the Independent that there is absolutely no checks in place to stop anyone from giving a fake name and number. I don't think you'd have to be a master criminal to think, you know, I, 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 I might give a false name and number here. If you were having, if you had in your head a little plan to break out of the gaff. This essentially means that nobody actually compared the name they gave to the name on their documents. It also means that they didn't take their passports. Yes, it does. Doesn't. I mean, if you go, if you go to a, ho I don't know anymore, but it used to be there were lots of countries on the continent of Europe. If you were staying in a hotel, local law would mandate that they would have to take your passport and hold your passport. And at the very least, if you were going out afterwards and you didn't have an identity document, that they would have to make, they would have to keep a photocopy of your passport on file for as long as you stayed in the hotel. The implication on this is they say they don't have any of their details would be seem to be that they don't even have a photocopy of their passport. No, and so I assume they don't have, if they don't know if the names are correct, they don't have any information from the airline either. Which is interesting, as most of these people would have had to pass through customs. And it would appear, assuming that the story in The Independent is correct, that the government put this in place without any way to link in to any entity or organization which could actually gather people's details, which is a bit of a problem, because it turns out that the <laughs> the military, despite being on the grounds and the security staff of the grounds, have no legal right to stop people actually leaving. So if you simply leave, they will shout at you a bit and set the guards on you using the forms which there are no safeguards in place to ensure you actually give the correct details and apparently no way of confirming your identity with anyone, despite the fact you have just engaged in international travel. So as we speak, the guards are going around Dublin saying, have you seen two foreigners that look like they might be on the run? Does this phone number look familiar to you? <laughs> yeah, that's top notch. That's, I mean, that's you know, tip-top. Joined up thinking, Michael. I know that they didn't want to put machine gun nests and razor barbed wire around the Crown Plaza. But you thought maybe a couple of guards? What I'm looking forward to, Michael, is when the government responds to this story and blames GDPR. And quite rightly. Absolutely. There, there are never enough things we can blame GDPR for. No, because we need to drag all of those privacy people down into the hell they deserve to live in. <laughs> Well, presume, I, mean, I imagine that, speaking seriously, they can't get the, the, the names from the 
their companies because of GDPR? I mean, all the other, surely, could they not go, could they not get a warrant? Like, could they not apply to the courts for that kind of information? I mean, it's not like a doctor-patient confidentiality. Here's an option there, Michael. You might be able to say, well, the difference is people consent to go into a hotel. But what about this? They land. They are to go to mandatory quarantine. You tell them to give you their passport. They say no. You deport them. They say yes. Then you have their passport. And they've consented to it. That seems pretty easy to do. I am sure there may be some legal or GDPR issues, but it seems like something that the full force of the government, a year into a pandemic, could probably work around. Particularly when we see, like, that they were able to handle religious issues. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And weren't even sure for a good while if there was a law. Somehow I feel they could take a passport if they really wanted to. Or at least a photocopy. Indeed, as I was going to say, if not a passport, you could take a photocopy of it. It occurs to me, if, you know, of course, maybe one of the reasons they can't go to the uh, to the courts to apply for this is because maybe no law has been broken. Uh, we know that it's all very fuzzy wuzzy about what is a law and what is advisory and what is a regulation. It's all very metaphysical and philosophical. So who knows? I mean, they've said there's, there's penalties. That I've, there's a piece of legislation. I've looked at it. It exists. <laughs> it exists. It is there. There is text, presumably. I just think they may be really bad at this. Like, I I get that they've set it up in a kind of, we've been dragged into this, we don't really want to do it way. But at the same time, even then... Excuse me, taking a photocopy of a passport does not seem to be the kind of ra- a radical step that nobody ever thought of. Jeez, I thought it was basically, as they got off the bus, you just collect the passports. Yeah, the great thing about difficult times is they give you a great ch- chance to kind of see what people are made of and what you yourself are made of. It was also a chance for, you know, government officials who are constantly under fire as inept and incompetent and TDs to show that they could actually do something. But then they keep doing stuff like this. And regardless of what you think about mandatory quarantine... To set up a mandatory quarantine system in which you have no way of actually verifying anyone's identity and it is apparently perfectly time for people to leave because no one there has the legal authority to stop them. That's a special level of fuck up. Yeah, you have to say, without fail, every time they're presented with a challenge, they fail to rise to it. But this should, like, I'm not even going to... The thought of, like, this had to go through multiple people and no one at any stage went... What if someone gives a fake name? One of the most interesting things about recent polling has been how consistently the government is deemed to be doing a bad job on its handling of the pandemic. The majority of the people think they're doing a bad job. And they've now come out with a new idea, which I believe, Michael, will raise that uh, will raise that unhappiness to record heights. Mm-hmm. Mostly true resentment. So it is this. The government has announced that from now... Two people, if they are both fully vaccinated, as in first and second dose, can meet together indoors. Two, not three, have been unable to find any explanation of why any of this was decided. But here's the thing about that, Michael. I can see people, the government going, you know, it's it's a little bit of easing of restrictions that people will be happy about. Problem here is this. Resentment is one of the strongest drivers of political action. The people who have been vaccinated haven't done anything to deserve it they've just been in particular age categories 
or they've been one of the people who've worked for the HSE in some capacity. And so I just have a feeling that when some people are allowed to move and you know, meet a friend, that might bring a very solid idea of how badly the vaccination program is going to the minds of the public in general. It also may bring to mind the fact that none of the HSE's data actually makes the slightest bit of sense. They're talking about, I mean, some of the numbers they're saying they're vaccinating, and then when you go look into it, there aren't that many people employed in that sector. There aren't that many patients. In fact, you've, you've vaccinated multiple times the people who seem to exist in this category. Who the fuck are you vaccinating? The numbers are a bit complicated, or well, complicated, confused there. Um, you're better at this kind of stuff from me, but how, the numbers seem to suggest, for ex- we take two examples. The example of the number of people who are in care homes and people working in care homes. And it gives the numbers of the tens of thousands of people in that sector who have been vaccinated. Then it goes on to the health service and people working in the health service. And then if you allow everybody in the health service and then you throw in people who are working, who are also, say, in private health and GPs and pharmacists and people working for pharmacists, the numbers, they still don't... They seem to be ex- exceeding the actual numbers of people involved in all of these sectors by a fair degree. Uh, what am I missing there? There seem to be there seem to be a lot of people in there that I can't work out where they came from. I can't tell you. No one knows. I know Paul Cullen in the Irish Times had an article on this recently. He's been trying to find information. I've been unable to find anything out from the HSA. But the numbers, like they are strikingly different. So, for instance. At cohort two is frontline healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. 325,000 vaccines have been administered to people in that cohort. Right. There are nowhere near those numbers of frontline medical staff in, those, in this country. Even if you include all of the NGOs that are helping um, with this, people in the private sector pharmacies, everyone supporting those people, the administration. But do we know how many of these have res- how many of these are double vaccines? Of the 325,000 vaccines, you're looking at about 233,000 first doses. And there are still not that many uh, people in that sector. Right. It's nowhere near it. But the HSE will not explain who's actually being vaccinated. And if we're now starting to give benefits to people who've been vaccinated it would seem pertinent that we can actually figure out who is being vaccinated. And this this is partially what I was talking about with the beacon, where there are like 20 vaccines, and now there might have been one or two more that people are concerned about. The HSE and the government have vaccinated untold numbers of people and fit them into categories that we have no evidence they're actually in, when those categories seem to be multiple times larger than the entire workforce in those areas. Right. So it's 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 just a black box that stuff goes into. But I, I can see the reason why you would do this politically because you think it would help people, but I think it's just gonna piss people off. I for a while they'll be looking forward to it, but the vaccination program is getting faster, but it's not getting faster at a high enough rate to offset that I think. Also, I mean I, I, I would like an explanation and there may well be one, but two people who have received double vaccinations, who are from different households, can now meet. Why is it two? Why not three? I mean, if they're double vaccinated, and the vaccination provides extraordinary high levels of protection, 
what why two why not three or four i mean i what is the basis for that is this a completely arbitrary thing is this because they thought oh well we'll, we'll do that because it sounds like a good thing to do but we don't want to go mad and sort of be considered i i don't i don't see why that number what, what's particular or special about that number as regards i mean if you really want to create resentment i can imagine a situation where you know we should people who have had two vaccines should have little flags they can put outside their houses and then they should have a series of cars pull up outside their house and then one by one people go in you know double vaccinators going and they wave to everybody i'm going in to visit my friend i've had two vaccines they leave then another person comes in and then another person and so on and so forth so you could have streams of people constantly going into the house without ever actually exceeding the recommended number of two people in the house but you could meet two dozen people as long as they're all double vaccinated the the interesting thing about this is that they go ahead with this plan then the people who will have the most freedom under the lockdown are going to be the elderly and the compromised. And, of course, public service. Vaccinations given to members of the public service are the single largest category of vaccinations uh, that have been undertaken. There's far more people in that area. And they say it's frontline healthcare staff. I frankly don't believe that. I've heard multiple stories of people tangentially associated with the HSE being vaccinated, staff who had basically no risk of ever meeting a patient. For a while, there were admin staff being vaccinated where you could at least make the argument that they were absolutely key. That moment has long since gone. So you will have the elderly, the ill, and public servants able to freely meet. Now, having achieved that coverage of that particular sector, my understanding is we've now decided we're abandoning the sectorial approach and we're now returning to a purely age-based approach. Yes, the uh, the government has come out and said that age is the thing that determines negative outcomes above anything else. And there's no proof that any one sector is at greater risk of death uh, or severe illness due to COVID-19. It is in fact exactly the approach, Michael, I said they should have taken on this show when they said they were going to do the uh, medical staff first. Uh, However, my issue with it is this. They have done it when it appears that almost everyone in the health service has been vaccinated. Yes. So now it just looks like... Now you have the guards, you have the teachers, you have all of those people doing what we said they would do when we were discussing this, Michael, that if you're doing healthcare workers, why not guards? Why not teachers? Why not whatever? You've accepted the principle... Now it's just a question of how far you're willing to apply it. I'm not arguing, to be clear, necessarily. I'm not arguing for, too far or against the case. But take teachers, for example. If we are going to see anything replicated here, as we've seen replicated in other cases, and we see there are suggestions it's already happening, we're, see, we're going to see increasing numbers of cases within uh, younger people and with children. We're talking about full school opening up in April. And inevitably, as you get more mixing and you, you, you get fewer restrictions, you will get an increase in cases. It seems to me that there's a, more so than, say, in admin staff and certain kinds of medical staff, even medical staff in, 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 in the HSE, who would never have to come in contact with an infectious ward or with, with a COVID patient. The teachers are going to be, you could say, well, we're here. This is now the single biggest risk category. We're in a very particular situation where we're in the same room 
we're with 30 people, we're there for an extended period of time, blah, 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 we're actually at a higher risk than lots of other people. And the fact that they, they weren't at a risk in the past is not actually predictive of the, of the risk that they will be in the future because the, the circumstances in which they find themselves are going to be substantially different. So it's not, you can't say, well, in the past it wasn't a problem. Therefore, it won't be a problem in the future. When the, when the situation has changed, the circumstances have changed, the risk may well have substantially changed. And I think on the basis of what the kinds of people we think may have been vaccinated under the auspices of frontline workers, would that argument would, would fit perfectly well with teachers and perhaps better with teachers. So, you're, it, yeah, it seems like an odd choice to make, although it does smack a little bit of, well, we've got our own done now, so let's get back to the other system. Because presumably working on the basis simply of age makes the whole thing an awful lot easier to administrate. That is kind of, that is the issue I have with it, that it does have this strike of, okay, well, we've got them vaccinated. That's a massive worry off our mind. We'll have to deal with their unions and they're all happy. And now we'll go back to what we actually should have done initially, and of which we had done from the start, we would actually have seen substantially more uh, progress. On the example you brought up, Michael, I think if you accept the government's initial reasoning, that is the issue, that there is always going to be a group that you have to constantly reevaluate and then add to it. But the point I would make, and why I had originally thought it was a bad idea to do this with medical staff, it depends what you want the vaccination program to do. If you want to reduce cases, that's very different from what I think you should be doing, which is attempting to reduce the rates of severe illness and death. And if those are the things you are interested in reducing, then you go by age. If, however, you want to reduce cases or you have political considerations, then you go sectoral. So the government has now changed back or changed to age-based cohorts. They've said they're going to vaccinate the um, those who are vulnerable. I don't know. I haven't seen the, the written details yet. It's, it's not available when we're recording this, at least not the full extent of them. If they mean those they class at very high risk, or they're going to move that down to those who are classed as high risk, which is quite a distinction. Oh, it's a big distinction. It's a distinction between for example, me being vaccinated anywhere between now and the 14th of April and me being, me being vaccinated sometime at the end of July or the beginning of August, depending on which group you, 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 you drop into. Um, the distinction you, make, you made was, I suppose, just to respond very briefly, was you were saying that we, the, the, the approach should have been about harm reduction rather than a case reduction, that there were people that were most likely to end up severely ill in hospital, in ICUs or at the risk of death. And they are the people that we should primarily be concerned about. The argument they would have used, I suppose, that they have used around cases is that if you allow cases to expand to a certain point, well, then you will inevitably get a higher number of people in in being hospitalised and uh, in ICUs and dying as well, because the case numbers will go up. That's absolutely true. But when you actually look at the the difference in impact that this disease has upon the elderly versus uh, those who are younger. The disparity is so extreme that when you actually run the numbers, it still makes uh, makes significantly more sense to just do it by age. The only the distinction I would have made was that, as regards the the health service vaccinations, I was 
I would be more in favour of vaccinating, say, people who are working in A&Es, people working on COVID wards, that kind of thing. But that there would have been large sections of the the problem there would have been again, as you, as I think you you maybe you, you adverted to, would have been a, an internal political problem within the organisation when you decided, okay, those people were not going to vaccinate, those people are not going to vaccinate, those people are not going to be vaccinated. And then you then you're going to run into an else problems with unions and internal politics within the organisation, which probably looked like too big a headache for them to bother with. Yes, well, you know, the HSE is um, is having good fun. I mean, I heard of a lovely birthday party in one of their uh, common cafeterias recently. <laughs> That's the joy of just vaccinating everyone in the building. Yeah, yeah. You can have just a birthday party with cake. I'm told there was cake. I just throw in, as you know, I like to throw in these things every so often. There seems to be a little bit of good news on the old vaccine front. There is what we like to call real-world data. I love this thing of real-world data. Uh, Looking at the results from vaccinations, people vaccinated with Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, that they seem to be giving 90% effective protection against infection. Now, people uh, might wonder, well, we knew it was 90-something percent, wasn't it? But the difference is that we have known that they provide somewhere like 95, 94, 95% protection against illness and complete protection against hospitalization, severe illness or death. But what we didn't know was the degree to which it prevented people actually catching the virus, becoming infected. So therefore, there was the concern that people might actually be vaccinated, but asymptomatically, but catch the infection, being asymptomatic and therefore being a source of infection. It looks like uh, Pfizer and Moderna uh, carry around a 90% protection against that, which means that these, if once you're infected, that, that, that means that they have a very, very high level of protection against infection, which is a very positive thing for reducing transmission levels. And hopefully will mean that we can look at a, uh, at, uh, a situation where when we get into substantial areas of the population, having been back, that we can be a little bit more positive, a little bit more aggressive about reopening uh, the economy and loosening restrictions that we might otherwise might have been if we were looking at protection rates of maybe down around 70%. Uh, so that's a, that's a piece of good news, Gary. I just wanted to throw that in there. Make the people happy. It is important that we make the people happy, Michael. It's one of the core drivers of this show, I think. Well, that's certainly... It's, I've always thought that's what you were all about. It's a happy, smiley people. You know, I hear that more than you might expect. If you heard it once, Gary, that's more than I would expect. I've heard it at least twice. <laughs> well, that's twice as much. So just to, to wrap up, just a small little thing. Sinn Féin and the Indo. We all know the Indo does not like Sinn Féin. No one has any... That's that's not going to blow anyone's mind. But they have found just new levels of petty to go through. So what the Indo has been doing now is the Indo realised if you go onto Sinn Féin's Facebook page and you go into the transparency section, there are people whose primary residence is outside Ireland, Michael. Filthy foreigners who are doing stuff on Sinn Féin's page. They could be posting content, Michael, filling the minds of our impressionable youth with foreign filth. But it's it's not just filthy foreigners, Gary. Let's be honest here. Let's be precise. People based in Serbia. Now, we all know what Serbia is. Serbia is a bad country. Serbia is full of Serbians, and Serbians are very bad people. Serbians were responsible for the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand and precipitated the First World War, Gary. Let's let's not forget these basic facts of history. Serbia was responsible fundamentally for the uh, 
for the for the break at the break of Yugoslavia and the the war in Bosnia and the war in Croatia and Ljubljana, Srebrenica, and all that stuff. Serbia is very bad. We know that Serbia is bad, and Sinn Fein has people living in Serbia. So I mean that's a slam dunk as far as I'm concerned. If I didn't know anything else about Sinn Fein, Gary. That would be enough for me. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, you say that, Michael, about how the Serbs are terrible people, but I have to feel that since World War One, the Serbs have probably paid for that. Well, okay, I'll ask you the other question. One other country was mentioned as a as a base for the social me- media team. What was the other country? Germany, I believe. Germany, First World War, Second World War. I was actually I was amazed that the Independent, when they mentioned Germany did not point out that some of the IRA had gone to the Nazis looking for weapons during World War II. Sean Russell. Sean Russell. Well-known IRA Nazi sympathiser. I was legitimately surprised the Independent didn't try and get that in. And apparently, in the 1970s, the IRA had connections with the Bader-Meinhof gang, which was connected with the Red Branch Brigades, which shot Aldo Moro, the Prime Minister of Italy. I mean, it just goes on and on. So just just to explain before we, we mock this some more, what's actually happening here is if you have a Facebook page, like a, a business or whatever, you can add people on that to manage its content or look at the insights or to post stuff for you or to respond to comments, anything like that. And Facebook will display their primary country of residence if anyone goes and looks for it as part of a transparency measure. It doesn't mean Sinn Féin are employing anyone outside the country. It doesn't mean there's some sort of as some people were suggesting, shadowy foreign organization being paid, shadowy funds, Michael, to perform shadowy deeds. It most likely, and this was Sinn Féin's explanation, they have volunteers who live in those countries who help them moderate the page. That's a perfectly reasonable explanation. Right. I'm not, ma- I'm not mad on reasonable explanations, Gary. They lack, a- they lack either comedy or drama. So could we try for another one? I can go for the comedy. Finnegale Senator John Cummins. He said Sinn Féin have serious questions to answer about why their social media accounts are being managed by people outside the island of Ireland. Outside the island of Ireland? Yeah, he asked, why is it necessary that party leader deputy Mary Lou MacDonald has a Facebook account which is also managed in Germany? Why is the page of Northern Ireland Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill overseen by someone in Serbia? Cummins went on to say the party must also outline how these services are paid for. As they are outside the state, it is impossible for a regulatory body in Ireland to monitor this aspect of their digital operations, both from the perspective of the direct advertising media spend and any associated fees. He said he's going to raise the issue with Facebook. Cummins has not shown there is any service being paid for here, or anything of the sort, at all. I love this story. It's a wonderful encapsulation of the inability of Fine Gael and Fine Fáil to actually deal with Sinn Féin in any substantive fashion. It's not a policy issue. It's not a debate. It's we found people who are listed as uh, being involved with their f- social media page who are listed as being outside the country because clearly this is going to win us votes. Can you imagine, Michael, the sheer number of votes that must be found related to this issue? Oh, <laughs> Innumerable, Michael. Innumerable. Can I can I posit of what can I posit here a possible reason why somebody might be in Serbia? It's incredibly cheap, and the genocide is over. Genocide is over. Uh, it is very cheap. 
I'm just going to read out a headline from uh, yesterday or the day before from the ABC. Foreigners flock to Serbia to get coronavirus vaccine shots. Thousands of vaccine seekers from countries neighbouring Serbia have flocked to Belgrade after Serbian authorities offered free coronavirus jabs to foreigners who showed up over the weekend. I might point out that Serbia has, at this stage, around, oh God, over a quarter of its population has received at least one dose of vaccination vaccines. And I think that that's a... If I'd heard that, Gary... Now, it would be tricky to get to Serbia, admittedly, these days. But that's a fairly decent offer, isn't it? Free jabs to anybody nearby who wanted to come in over the weekend. So maybe, maybe, Sinn Féin just shipped over a couple of lads who want to get a vaccine, want to get vaccinated. Although you would have thought they would find friends up in the north that would have been able to do it for them. But there you go. Who is this Senator Michael? I legitimately have never heard of them before. I, I, he, I'm sure he's a perfectly nice chap. But I, I tell you, Gary, if you saw a photograph of him in a lineup and you were asked, name the name the occupation of this man, I guarantee you at least one of your guesses would be Fine Gael County Councillor or Senator. He's <laughs> the stamp of shiny, well, well-scrubbed young blue shirt about him is strong. He's, um, he was a county councillor in Waterford. He's on the... Heritage, he's a spokesman in the Shannon, he's from Waterford, spokesman on Heritage, and I can't remember, I know he's on, he's on Heritage. He's not, I would say, one of the most prominent uh, members of the Shannon, he's not in, he's not constantly in the press, but I'm sure he's perfectly respectful and respectful. Someone saying the Irish public deserve to know why the party's Facebook pages are being controlled by forces outside of the state. And what relationship does Sinn Féin, its candidates, and its officials have with Germany or Serbia does not make me think of him as a serious man. Forces outside of the state. Shadowy, Michael. Shadowy <laughs> forces. <laughs> I have to ask you, ask you, does, you know, does he think that maybe the black hand is behind it all? Every time I see stuff like this, like, I disagree with nearly every Sinn Féin policy I've read. But this is just lunacy. Also... It's not how you'll win. So why are you doing it? <laughs> Sorry. Um, the party must outline also, how are these services being paid for? It is impossible for regulatory body learning to monitor this aspect of their digital operation. Two key questions I'm quoting here. I have long... How long have these connections with Serbia and Germany been in place? It's like they have a... It's like a diplomatic connection, isn't it? That the, the relationship is not with two lads living in a flat in Belgrade, but rather... These connections with Serbia and Germany have been in place and this spend has been declared in Sinn Féin's exchequer or election returns. Well, I think mostly Sinn Féin's donations are given to the party in the north of Ireland, aren't they? Yeah, there's, there's been some interesting questions raised about that particular point. And those were actually interesting questions. Things like the, the exact wording of a man's will. Very, very important suddenly. Oh, yes. But uh, anyway, Cummins has said he's going to raise the issue with Facebook when it comes before the uh, Ukteros committee on Tuesday. So that just happened. I listened to part of it in a session. The session was about electoral interference. You have to imagine the response of the Facebook people is, you what now? Uh, they, they, they were in, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't follow the idea. I just love this idea. It genuinely. I don't know if that's what he intended, but generally reads like there's the implication there is some kind of state level involvement here. 
with Serbia and Germany, the deep involvement with Sinn Féin. As anti-Sinn Féin hit pieces in the Independent have gone, this isn't their top tier. Yeah, but Gary, you have to remember that when when, politi- when politicians speak, they speak to, di- to various constituencies. I remember years ago... What is the constituency for this? Finnegalers in Waterford. Do you, do you think even Finnegalers in Waterford, who are like, that's right, Cummins, take it to them. Who is that man in Serbia? Is he involved with the Black Hand? We must know. As long as you're kicking Sinn Féin, I mean, they don't really care this about the details. This isn't even kicking Sinn Féin. This is <laughs> like having a spasm and occasionally striking <laughs> out. <laughs> but this isn't politics. This is just... Oh. It's what passes. It is for it's what it's what, it's what passes for politics here, you know. I, he has he has another Finnegal. Uh, he has other Finnegal people in Watford, presumably that he's going to have to compete with to get a nomination next time out. And if he gets a nomination, he'll have to run against somebody uh, in the Dáil election, and he has to beat them. Oh, so you're saying he's got to burnish his uh, his credentials as an attack dog against Sinn Féin? Gary, he's in the Independent. You just said you'd never heard of the man. Well, now you've heard of him, and he's in the Independent. <laughs> See, that's working on the idea that uh, all press is good press. And Michael, I like to think that I play a small part in ensuring that that's not true. I don't know. I think that uh, for his constituency, who he's speaking to, he's been mentioned in an article which is... I think you're forgetting a fundamental problem here, Michael. Senators do not have constituencies. No, he doesn't yet. But I'm sure he's looking for one. <laughs> I'm sure he's looking for one. And, and as I say, that's one of the reasons why he's appearing in the Independent today, is to ensure he gets a constituency next time around. Um, now, whether, whether or not you might regard this as being the, 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 the lethal rape, rapier-like blow that will deflate Sinn Féin across the country and lead the masses to Finnegan, I am willing to see that. Many, many moons ago, there was a, a, a speech was published that Ian Paisley had given uh, in, a, in a church in Antrim somewhere. And it had, it, it had got out somewhere and he said some apparently inflammatory things. And I remember saying to a fellow who was in, in college with me, I said, hey, that was a bit, uh, a bit OTT there. I mean, that wasn't good for his image. To which this chap said to me, Michael, you have to remember he wasn't speaking to Dublin. He was speaking to Ballymena. He's not speaking. He's not speaking to us. He's speaking to the the fellow at the back of the nominating convention in Finnegale, and he's the guy. He got into the Independent, and he gave Mary Lou a kick in because something to, something to do with Serbia, something to do with them lads and Serbia and Germany and that, that internet. Or conversely, just as a an alternative to that, if you routinely raise incredibly petty non-issues about a party that you say has serious shadowy links it may in fact just undermine you and your party's credibility should you ever actually try and highlight serious problems with the party because you have set the uh, expectation that you will attack literally anything even if it is not so much shadowy as just a shadow Oh, that's a that's a very fanciful notion, Gary. I'm sorry, I, I don't buy that at all. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. That's that that might be all very well in in Malta or Montenegro, but let's deal with politics as they are, not as you would like them to be. No, I think this is very clearly what it is. It's a it's a it's a good laugh, and uh, well done, Finnegal Senator, for getting himself in the Indo.
Yes, he did get himself in the Indo, and he may have just been told this to do this by head office, in which case we can uh, attach no blame to Mr. Cummins. His hands are almost clean. And that's all Finnegale needs. <laughs> Some ink will always stick. So I think we will leave it there. We will be back on Friday. Friday, we should have the complete vaccine figures for March. We'll see how much they miss that by. We will see you then. All the best. Bye-bye.